I say, an audio cast for sensible people. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the DufferCast. Episode 6. I'm talking absolute shite tonight. Have we started recording yet? No, 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 you can say whatever you want. Actually, I meant to say, have we started the show yet? Because we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> so this is episode... Um, Five or six. six, yeah. Yeah, this is the Easter special, is it not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is recorded in August, but it should be ready by Christmas. Did you hear the end of the... The episode four? I did. That was brilliant. I'm I'm working my way through episode four at the moment, and uh, I, th- I think I got to the point of about I think it was twenty minutes and thirty seconds when I um I made a uh, a really odd sound, um, <laughs> which I'm going to take off of that uh, episode and use as a ringtone on my phone. Ah, uh-huh. you not remember the sound? I tried to remove odd sounds. But no, 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 no. This is this was an intentional sound. It wasn't a um a, an un- uh-huh. unintentional. It, it was me going. Ah, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> it was a good sound. It was a brilliant sound. The trouble is, because it's obviously been you know a couple of days since we recorded it, and uh, I was listening to, back to it for the first time in absolutely ages. Um, I was listening to it at work, and I got some really funny voice, uh, funny looks from from my colleagues, as um, as I had tears streaming down my face because <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. I was going. I was just going to say the same thing as the the show notes for episodes five and six. So, what is episode five? This must be six, is it? Yeah, this is six. Yeah, and episode four was released a week ago or something. Oh, and so a five was recorded as well, was it? Five was recorded, yes. Ah, uh, I missed two episodes. That's right. Now, now it comes back to me. Uh, and Gavin misses this one, and he missed a few before. And of course, we're missing uh, missing Yannick as well. Indeed. Oh, I, I see. We're going to have a heated debate. That's good. That's <laughs> uh, just a suggestion. Ah, now then, yes. Yes. Uh, yes. The gush, the sound. The, it, that's the first on the list. Uh, should we do that first? Uh, well, actually, uh, first, no, on it isn't. List, first on the list is intro. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that we miss every single time. We're doing better, though. I mean, we're, nine min- we're only nine minutes in. Well, sixteen right. minutes. Yeah, but most recordings. of those nine minutes will, <laughs> will be cut away. <laughs> so, but we have established it's episode six, and we've also established who isn't here. So we've done those two. Those two things are covered. That's it then, because everybody, everybody knows who should be here. So that's yeah. who's here. Yeah. It's on episode four. Dave says something like, "Now we've been recording for thirty minutes." You say that, and it's only ten minutes. <laughs> 
in the show. We're improving every <laughs> every month. Every six months. Yeah. <laughs> uh, every eight months. Indeed. So that's just been going but four hours now, and thirty six minutes. This is the beginning. <laughs> this is the beginning of our new uh, regular uh, recording and publishing of our eminent podcast. Welcome to season two. Uh, almost as seasonal as episode four of the last season. Yeah, we're getting more seasoned. We're certainly seasoned. Shall we introduce ourselves? We probably should. I'm Dave. And I'm also Dave, strangely enough. I'm not Dave. I'm the f- fourth person. Brilliant. Damn it. I should have played the third man theme there. <laughs> the fourth man, there isn't uh, such a theme. Wasn't even aware there was a third man. Third man theme in um, Orson Welles' movie. Yeah, it's played in a zither or something, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the title of the film in English. Yes, so instead of introduction where we introduce ourselves, we recall, recall obscure instruments from very old films. And that leads us naturally into a guess the sound. Now, does anybody have a sound for us to guess? Is it a zither? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> what happened <Fun>. there? <laughs> that was me holding the glass too close to my head. <laughs> Ouch. Does anybody else have a sound? Well, Paul just had an <laughs> impromptu sound. <laughs> yeah, but then he told us what it was. <laughs> I should have, yeah. <clears throat> no, no, sorry, Paul, you'll have to do it again. Uh, and again. Okay, hang on. And again. No, it's not word, did it? <laughs> So, any idea? Um, your glass getting too close to your head. But can you tell me what was in the glass? It's empty. No. Hang on, let me look at uh, the list. Let's, let me let's see if Paul's filled out the... Uh, it's, half, it's half no, empty. Uh, it, it's, Lafro- it's, it's a Laphroaig, 10-year-old, finished in a rum cask. You are very close, actually. You're very close. Right, 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 um... You're, yeah, right product, wrong brand. Oh, uh, Lagavulin? No, it's past mover. Right, we've just edited out my next 200 guesses. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so just Highland Park. Highland Park? Yes, hold well on. Ten-year-old? Highland well, Park's in Chicago, isn't it? No, it's the highest distillery in Scotland. Uh-huh. It's what did you say, Paul? The highest. the highest distillery in Scotland. Isn't it in Orkney and not very high at all? I thought. Okay, I I might be wrong. I, I could have sworn. I could have sworn that's where the name come from. Came from. Very good. Oh, no, I've been to Island Park Distillery and Orkney. Yeah. Don't make. Were they high there? Maybe <laughs> they, so. they said high. <laughs> 
don't don't so make that's the um, beer review claims like that with the Scots person in the room. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's I just I could just be. I want a sand bottle. <laughs> I think we're going to hear that sound of the bottle hitting his head again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we must follow the show notes because if we don't, people will think that we are uh, completely not serious. random. If we did follow the show notes, it'd be the first time we ever do. Yes, no, you're quite right. Um, what's next? Oh, next up, it's link, or is it comments? Where do we get to? Uh, you're going the wrong way. You need to need to go down, not across. Ah. Uh huh. I have a sound. If anybody wants one. Yeah. I've actually got three, so I don't know whether you want all of them or I'll just pick one of them. One of them I can only do a couple of times. You ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to do it now. All right, here we go. <laughs> it's a brain fart. <laughs> I know what Paul's thinking. <laughs> That's really worrying. <clears throat> was it this? Ew. No. It was drier than that. Was it a zip? No. Do it again. Here we go. No idea. Have I beaten you all? I believe you have. It was a cable tie. Ah, and that's why I only do it a few times. Well, actually, I managed to get this one undone, but now I can't. I can't get it undone again. So that one, that one's done for. And can I ask, who or what are you cable tying? Uh, I was actually cable tying my finger at the time. Ah, uh, it's okay. As long as no animals were hurt. No, no, no. It did, didn't squeeze too hard. Are your fingers made of cables? In an abstract sense, yes. Ah. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> Can I guess in advance? Is this the sound of handcuffs going on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I don't need to do that one, do I? Is that a request from the audience? Or? <laughs> okay. Now, Westland winds and slaughtering guns. Bring autumn's pleasant weather The moorcock springs on whirring wings Among the blooming heather Now waving grain, what are the plains? Delights the weary farmer And the moon shines bright When I rove at night To muse upon my charmer The partridge loves The fruitful fell the plover loves the mountains The woodcock haunts the lonely dells The soaring heron, the fountains 
Through lofty groves, the Cushat rose. The path of man to shun it. The hazel bush o'erhangs the thrush. The spreading thorn, the linnet. Thus every kind that pleasure finds. The savage and the tender Some social joy and leagues combine Some solitary wonder Avant away the cruel sway Tyrannic man's dominion The sportsman's joy The muttering cry The fluttering gory pinion But Peggy dear The evening's clear Thick flies the skimming swallow The sky is blue The fields in view All fading green and yellow Come let us stray Our gladsome way and view the charms of nature The rustling corn The fruited thorn And every happy creature We'll gently walk And sweetly talk Till the silent moon shine clearly I'll grasp thy waist And fondly pressed Swear how I love thee dearly Not vernal showers To budding flowers not autumn to the farmer So dear can be As thou to me My fair, my lovely charmer Now Westland winds and slaughtering guns bring autumn's pleasant weather. So, so who's um, whose suggestion was the uh, the, the the main talk? 
that was my suggestion, um, which struck me after I read uh, Andrew's blog post, actually. Also, bearing in mind the guest who we were hoping to have, um, thought it might be interesting. Yeah, well, I'm certainly happy to talk about it. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I well, I, I, I read your 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 blog post on um, the you know the Scottish uh, uh, independence vote, and what struck me really was that you were talking about the the the, the lack of pragmatism, or yeah, or, or I was reading in a lack of pragmatism on, on the part of the SNP, which is what had struck me every time I see them talking about how they're going to relate to Europe uh, if Scotland becomes in- independent. So, Yeah, well, I mean, that's certainly, uh, I mean, uh, when, you, when you're writing something, you, you, I, I find, and when I'm speaking, I, I like to try and come up with reasons um, and therefore you end up being pragmatic. Otherwise, it's just, I want this somebody else wants that and there's nothing to talk about really, which I have to be honest, a lot of conversations I've witnessed uh, about the independence referendum, despite what people say, are very much like that to people who are never going to agree, who are just saying things to each other, who never in a million years are going to really admit that the other person might have a point. In fact, it's exactly like the House of Commons. It's exactly like that. Um, But when I wrote that blog post, what I hadn't quite realised is actually what really unsettled me about it was actually that I just don't like nationalism in any shape or form. That's what fundamentally has spooked me. If there's a sort of a subconscious, almost a rational, emotional thing that, uh, that I'm responding to, it's this is being driven by nationalism, despite what some people are claiming. And and, and actually, after I read, wrote the blog post, I actually looked back at it and thought, mm, I hadn't quite realised that all of my reasons... Hadn't been thought through that that was something that was definitely affecting me. Yeah, you know, it's one of the advantages of, advantages of laying your thoughts down. I find is that it does bring out things that you hadn't really consciously thought of or weren't d- directly thinking about. I don't really have a problem with nationalism per se, or, or not civic na- nationalism. What strikes me about the Scottish independence debate and other independence or separatist movements I've seen across Europe is that there seems to be a bit of a starry-eyed, well, if we if we go separate, then everything will be wonderful and everything will just fall into place. I just don't believe that's, that's going to happen. And I can see reasons why it wouldn't happen as well. So. Yes, so I think, I mean, that's, that's certainly my, my view of the situation. Um, uh, if you look at the... F- the, the people campaigning for a, a yes vote, um, the majority is, are definitely people who who are nationalists. They're SNP supporters in the main, not all of them, but mostly. And I would say something like, you know, support for independence in Scotland probably sits between about 30 and 40 percent. So I would guess about five to 10 percent, five to 10 percentage points of that, I should say, is uh are people made up of people who uh, have joined the independence cause, not for nationalist reasons, but for the reasons that you just stated, Paul, because they want something better and they feel that independence will throw everything up in the air and there's a good chance they feel that things can be reorganised for the better afterwards. And actually, some evidence for that can be found in that 
uh, people who are less well off are more likely to go for independence, and, and that's totally understandable. I mean, if if you're comfortable in, and uh, as frankly as I have to say, I am. You know, I'm quite comfortable, reasonably well off. You know, I'd, the status quo for me is pretty good. But then there's a lot more people. For every one of me, there's I don't know five, ten other people who are, don't feel that they're well off, don't feel comfortable, and are struggling. And I can see. The, throwing things up in the air and seeing where they fall might just might be better. They see that as a, as a hope for a change in their personal situation. And I've heard that argument made several times. It's not an argument that would convince me, but I do understand uh, that there is uh, there is an element of truth in that. I can certainly understand that. I mean, if you if you're the less you have, the less you have to lose. So yeah. Throw it, throw it. I mean, I mean, the 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 lower the risk, you've got you know you you've got less to lose. There's less of a risk. Yeah. Yeah, but for those that do have something to lose, that's one hell of a risk to take. If you are going with the let's throw it up in the air and see where it lands, that's not really the kind of gamble you take with the stability of a country. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a massive risk and I think it's a badly thought out risk because I think you know, there are a whole bunch of practical and practical issues and political issues and negotiations that Scotland and independent Scotland Scotland would have to go through. See why other countries would to make that difficult for them as well. I don't see anything coming out of the Yes campaign saying how they're going to deal with this. And indeed not. I mean, the, 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 if if I was to really home in, in my primary reason why I think there's a, a big risk associated with it, and it's a real risk, is that uh, is the currency question, which thankfully in the last week after the leaders of the campaigns, Alex Salmond and Alistair Darling, who's former Chancellor of Exchequer in the UK, uh, they came together. And most people seem to be of the opinion that Alistair Darling surprisingly came off the better. But one of the reasons he could do that was because of the currency question. Essentially, the, the Yes campaign and Alex Salmond are saying, well, no, Alex Salmond is saying, the leader of the Scottish National Party and First Minister of Scotland, he is saying that we'll keep the pound and Westminster will agree to a currency union after uh, independence. Um, and opponents are of independence are saying, come on, that's not going to happen. What is your plan B? And I think Al- Alex Hammond has finally admitted that he doesn't have a plan B. He refused to say it in the debate, which counted against him, I think. But interestingly, in the last week, other significant and senior uh, colleagues to Alex Hammond and the Yes Campaign for Independence have, um, have said that they would like to see Scotland having its own currency. And in my mind, that is the correct thing to do. If you want independence, you might as well go for it and do it properly. Otherwise, you run all the risks uh, that are associated with being in the euro uh, that uh, Ireland, Spain, Greece uh, have faced. Um, where you, you know, if, uh, if 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 you get into trouble financially as a country, if you've got your own currency, you can devalue it. Everybody takes a pay cut. I mean, there's downsides to it, but at least everyone's hit equally. And Iceland did that. Uh, after the uh, after the financial crisis and came out all the better for it. You mentioned the euro, and I, I, I may be out of, date, out of date here, but I was under the impression that the the Yes campaign were were talking about well, one of the arguments they came up with for Scottish Scottish independence was that they could represent themselves better as an independent country in the EU. If they, but my understanding of that is, if they reapplied to join the EU, then they're basically going to be stuck with the euro. So all this discussion about currency union and independent currency pretty much moot. Well, the thing is, 
I, I, you mentioned that uh, on when we were discussing it in the Fediverse. I think the answer to that is what they're saying is no, Scotland aren't really going to leave and come back into the uh, into the eurozone. What they're going to do is stay on in the eurozone zone with all the privileges that the UK currently have, including not using the euro. The trouble is that that is a very grey area and there's a lot of debate about, you know, not just the currency, but also, you know, there's a lot of subsidies, uh, for example, there's a lot of uh, farmers receive a lot of subsidies from, from Europe. Would Scotland receive receive the same favourable treatment uh, that the UK currently receives? That's totally up in the air. The other thing you'd have to consider there, of course, is that if Scotland wanted to do that, then they've got to negotiate that with the other member states. And states like Spain are going to look at their own separatist movements and say, why would we want to give our separatists encouragement by making it easy for Scotland? So, again, you've got a, there are other countries with political motivations, internal political motives for not making it, for not giving Scotland any breaks at all. You've got a hard negotiation and any, any of this will work is really, really over-optimistic. Yes, I have to, I have to agree. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sorry, sorry. Let's have a Swedish perspective. <clears throat> no, I, both of you are breaking up now and then. So, is it just for me, or uh... it sounds clear to me? Yeah, it's clear this end as well. Uh, I have some serious problems. Uh, I mean, apart from the usual ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sound okay to us, or to me, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you're too kind. Um, <laughs> uh, the, yeah, what you mentioned last, if I heard correctly, is that also some, for example, like mentioned in the show notes, um, Spain, they don't really want uh, any independence movements or uh, separatists or what you call in other EU countries because yeah. it was just put, uh, uh, how do you say? Yeah, any, any, conce any concessions that Scotland gets in doing this um the spanish separatists would expect the same and that's the and spain don't want that so that's going to make life difficult for the scots i think yeah this thing with nationalism is it's really a complicated concept especially in the eu because uh, mm, i mean let's say i mean most of our uh, laws are made actually centrally in the EU and I think like 75% of the laws in Sweden for example are actually just copies more or less of EU laws and uh, but still we have these nationalist uh, symbols like you know kings and parliaments and uh, well the parliaments have some function and ev also every time somebody criticizes the eu or the um, i mean what kind of a europe do we want and if you criticize it and think it is going to be too centralized or something then these pro-eu people just stand up and shout you you know a nationalist or you're almost a fascist because you don't go, go along with these centralized plans and I'm uh, it's, it's really complicated uh, concept this nationalism it's used here and there and everywhere and uh, I don't know 
I think I think part of the problem is that nationalism encompasses such a broad range of opinions. From the you, you know the, at one end of the at one end of the spectrum, you do have yeah basically fascists. At the other end, you have the civic nationalists who are really just talking about where they want their seat of government. And the civic nationalists, I don't have a problem with. Obviously, I do have a problem with the um, far right. Uh, it's and yeah, I mean. It- yeah, I mean, for example, the civil rights movement in the U.S. in the 60s, and quite many of them to call themselves black nationalists. Not, not maybe that was more the black Muslims and the black Panthers, and but in the in, in the anti-colonial movements in the 50s and 60s, they call themselves nationalists. Not to say that maybe some countries, well, had had rather bad development, but. It, it's um, in a sense, it's an anti-colonial concept too. I mean, so. Well, I think when I when I was using the term nationalist, I was really thinking of a rather more emotional type of nationalism. To be honest, um, I mean, it's very easy easy to be on one side of the line, whereas you love your country because it's where you were born, where you were brought up, uh, it's where you feel like you belong, it's, you have some kind of identity with it. As personally, I don't really have that in any great, to great, any great extent. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that's on the side of the civic nationalism that uh, Paul highlighted. Trouble is, when you get a bit intoxicated with that, then you, and you start to think that your country, or the people in your country are somehow better than people in some other country, um, by definition, uh, and it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling thing, uh, then you don't need to go to the far right to start having problems with that. Even in the middle, uh, some dubious thinking goes on once you start believing that just because your favourite country, the one that you happen to be in, yeah, that, that, that's, that's the meaning I took from it anyway. That's, that's what, how, I, how I was using it. Do any of you read the Dork Tower comic strip? No, no, that's a shame. It, um, it's 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 uh, it's mainly about role playing. But they they did a recent one where where um, the main character standing at a bus stop, and the guy behind him suddenly leaps up and yells, "My team, country and religion are the greatest in the world." With the main character turns around, and you just happen to be born into them. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's I, I was thinking. The, the people in the UK or the rest of the UK or outside Scotland or even in Scotland who say, let's stay together in the UK, so to speak, and not leave the EU, but stay together in the UK, aren't they a sort of UK nationalists then? I think it really depends on what argument they're making in order to stay together. Yeah, I was thinking if you think UK is like a national, no, sorry, a natural yeah, entity, then I mean it's it's very hard to. I, well, I I'm not sure. I, I I don't really have any opinion about this Scotland and uh, and as Andrew said, it's it's very strange to have like the same currency and especially when England is a much bigger and economically stronger part. Yeah. No, I, I was just going to say I, I find it interesting because obviously we see, I, or we, we we see very similar arguments being made in Belgium, where we have uh, Flemish nationalists, um, you know, 
well, in it, well, the uh, Flemish government, it looks like they're going to be in the national government. So they're doing pretty well as well. The, the point I was going to make is that I think being nationalist at the UK level or even at the Europe level is, is, feels very different. You would never really hear people saying, I am European. They would say, you know, I am uh, French or German, you know, that's that's what you'd hear. You wouldn't see, hear somebody say, I'm, I'm European, unless they were looking for some very, very specific point. Similarly, it's actually, I think, quite rare for people, it's not, well, it's not, uncom- it's not unheard of, but mainly people like to say English, Irish, Welsh, Scottish, in preference to British, and, and, and there's no word for UK, UK-ian or UK-ish, it doesn't even exist. So I'm I, quite comfortable with that. Uh, the, the UK has quite a loose um, association with me. It's actually almost nationalism-free as a concept to me, which is why I like it. And, I, and, and actually, I have found myself calling myself British uh, in recent years because I'm getting uh, a bit annoyed with the nationalism tied up with being uh, Scottish. Um, so, uh, and also, you know, my father's from England of Irish extraction, and my mother's from Iran. So you can see why I don't feel particularly Scottish. That's interesting you should say that because I mean, I I think that that more people, certainly in England, would associate themselves as being British than English, um, except once every four years, of course, when the uh, the flags come out. But um, I, I would say certainly here, it, it's more British than English. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think, I don't know what would shape my opinion there, but uh, um, I suppose, uh, it, I mean, obviously want people wandering around Glasgow don't declare themselves to be English all that readily. You know, it's not something you'd hear people. <laughs> mm. <laughs> It'd be pretty obvious for a start, you wouldn't need to do it. Um, but I suppose on the, on the radio, um, I listen to a lot of, of the radio, and I suppose a lot of people especially abroad, will say English when they mean British. Because um, uh, it's totally understandable. It's not. I don't have a big problem with it because the language is called English. And um, But, yeah, I never really thought about whether... Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that British is, is, uh, is used in preference where you are. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand necessarily where, the, where if any, um, divide exists between people identifying themselves as British or identifying themselves as English. And I'm using those two um, uh, comparisons directly because I think that as as an Englander, um, we don't necessarily have the same level of national pride as the Welsh, the Irish and the Scots do. In, in those other uh, countries, they celebrate their national days with a lot more gusto and a lot more um life than we do here in England, whereas I think England is considered by the English I mean obviously if anybody disagrees with what I'm about to say then do let us know. English consider themselves part of Britain, whereas Wales, Ireland and Scotland consider themselves a nation state. It's the reason why the Welsh have their own assembly, the Scots have their own assembly and the Irish have their own assembly. And the attempts to uh, start regional British English assemblies fell flat on their face. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that, that makes some that makes some sense to me. I mean, I, I couldn't help thinking though. I mean, I did live in England um, 
for a few years. And I did start to, and it was the time of um, England were going into the World Cups. When was this be? Two World Cups ago. And was it the Queen? When was the Queen's Jubilee? What year was that? 50th? That'd be. Uh, 2012. Was that? No, it's the 60th, isn't it? Oh, sorry. The 50th. Oh, 2002 then. Yeah, 2002, yeah. That year, um, I remember uh, where I was, which was down uh, near Cambridge, uh, people were commenting that people were flying the St. George's Cross flag, the red cross on the white, in preference to the Union Jack. And the, the, the people's reasons were twofold. First of all, because Scotland... Was and Wales had both asserted a stronger national identity, but also because the Union Jack had at that time and maybe still to some extent had been started to get rather uh, associated with the British National Party, who are very right wing uh, racist, uh, and so people kind of went off the Union Jack at that time. So maybe it's that memory of that summer of two thousand and two, whenever it was, because um, I, I was away actually, I was away and I came back and it was just St George's crosses everywhere. You know, it was lovely. You know, it was everyone was supporting England to whatever semi-finals, wherever they got to in the World Cup, and the Jubilee spirit was all up. You know, it was a nice atmosphere, street parties and the rest of it. Um, but I just remember that thinking, oh, like, well, maybe this being English is a bit more popular than than British at the moment. So maybe that's where I get it from. Um, I think the the English thing is around the World Cup. Um, you you will notice that. You know, people aren't really that fussed about claiming how wonderful England are. Sorry, England is until World Cup comes along, and then everybody starts being um, patriotic and you know supporting the the, the 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 George Cross and all the rest of it. And it's it's completely and totally um, sync purposed. I remember quite clearly the um, the street parties in England in 77 for the Queen's Silver Jubilee and it was all Union flags absolutely the whole way through because she is the Queen of Britain, the Queen of the UK um, as, as much as anything else and I, I feel that it's more likely that the timing of the World Cup and the timing of um, the uh, Golden Jubilee was um unfortunate that I think if the World Cup hadn't been happening you would have seen a hell of a lot more Union flags than you would have done um, George Crosses yes it could, could well be could well be a, and uh, yeah it's hard to it's hard it's, it is, it is hard to, to compare um, 1977 uh, 1978 was it 1978 was the World Cup that Scotland were A in and B predicted to do quite well in, but of course didn't. Uh, so that's, I, I remember 78. And sorry to be a pedant, by the way, um, it is the, the Union flag. It's only the Union Jack when it's at sea. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, this was on the land. Although it was land that was under below sea level. Uh, I don't know if that counts. I don't know. I think you're clutching the straws. <laughs> so, so Dave, tell me, as, as somebody who uh, lives in England, uh, what do you wish Scotland to do? I know you don't get to vote, um, unfortunately, or from a, uh, um, I think some people in England have expressed that opinion to me that they feel they would like a vote. But what, how do you feel about Scotland leaving or not? Well, that, that's that's interesting. Um, the moment you ask that question, Caroline walks into the room, so I'm going to ask her opinion in a second. Um, my opinion is, I think that. Um, I, do I have an opinion? 
That's probably the first question. Yes, I think that Scotland is better off as part of the United Kingdom, personally. That's my own personal choice. I think if they did um, split off and become an independent com- country, then they, they do run the risk of of alienating the knobs in the process of trying to establish themselves as a, as a, a nation state in their own right. So, no, my opinion is that better together, as they, uh, as they, they call it. Uh, join Sweden. <laughs> yeah, is it, is it Sweden that's not part of Europe, uh, not part of the EU? No, Norway. Uh, Norway. Oh, it's Norway. Sorry, on Iceland and yeah, but, but Iceland's in the middle of the sea, so it doesn't count. Uh, but I think one reason Iceland is outside of EU is if they joined EU, they would probably their fishing waters would probably be vacuum cleaned by. <laughs> Fishermen from other parts of Europe. But didn't didn't Iceland start negotiations to join the EU recently and then abandoned them? I've got a feeling I saw something about that a while ago. Not not that long ago. Yeah, maybe it was after the crisis. Possibly, possibly. Let me. Um, just uh, um, I I've missed a little bit of the talk because you were breaking up for me and so on, but. I'm I'm going to do a short uh, segue here, but not uh, abandon this discussion, but just mention the, the beer I was uh, trying now. And it's a Swedish beer. And the, fa- uh, the brand is Nils Oscar. That's a name and uh, a person name too, and the name of the brewery. And the, the, this beer is, the name of it is Belgo Pale Ale. So it's supposed to be like a combination of Belgian and style and ale. So it's very international. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds nice. It does, yeah. Yeah, It's not uh, nationalistic at all. It's (laughs) anti-nationalist. It's Belgo Pale Ale from Sweden. It's a horrible uh, multicultural mix. A multinational beer. A multinational beer. (laughs) Well, I'm on my first mug of jasmine-infused green tea. Well, that's very Scottish. Well, I don't always do Scottish things. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think it's a statement, uh, like anti-independence statement. I drink tea. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yes, I, I want. I want union with China. It's not even proper tea, it's green tea. That sounds nearly racist. <laughs> so I added in uh, in the show notes, actually, I've numbered them. I'm, I'm, I probably have a, a special personality <laughs> listing stuff. I don't know. But... Oh, and verdicts as well, I see. Yeah, because I thought if if I'm trying to remember after five bottles what I thought of the first one, I thought maybe that would be... Well planned, well planned. Talking of multinational and and segueing back to where we were before um, the the beer diversion. Before the Um, drunken (laughs) interrupted the discussion. Is Iceland not a sovereign protectorate of Denmark? No, that's Greenland. Oh, okay, so Iceland is actually a... 
Independent yeah, country. Independent country. Right, okay, right, okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to shut up then. I've just, um, done a, I've just done a search on Google News, and I've got a story from the July the 17th saying, former foreign minister says EU application still valid. Apparently, they are. I mean, so, so apparently there is some I, negotiation as to whether they're still trying to get into the EU or not. Um, I haven't actually read it yet, obviously, but um, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Well, the interesting thing about Iceland I discovered recently is that its population is, well, is, is, is 300 and something thousand people. That would make it less than half the population of the city of Glasgow that I live in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it is tiny. It's absolutely minuscule. Uh, and if you then look at what it did in the financial industry pre-crisis mm. uh, and how many... Well, I mean, in councils, if you added up all the councils that used Iceland savings accounts and financial products in the UK, the populations covered by those councils probably add up to more than the population of the whole of Iceland. And Iceland, uh, I mentioned that it had its own currency so it could devalue it. Um, But the other thing it was able to do, which nobody else in the world, well, apart from Lehman Brothers in the United States, uh, the only other obvious example, is that, that, that they, they didn't try uh, and uh, save their banks, just let them go bust. And all the foreign investors said, you've lost all your money, sorry. So, you know, uh, <laughs> it's a, a story at, uh, uh, of uh, well, even a very small country can, uh, can well, wield quite a lot of power in, in a strange sort of a way. To be honest, I think letting your banks go bust is a more sensible uh, approach than what happened in the UK because... I mean, when when the crisis hit, the banks had failed. So either you nationalise them or you let them go bust. And what the UK did, the this sort of kind of half nationalisation, where we'll give you money, but um, well, just give you money really doesn't solve anything, as far as I can see. Yes, uh-huh. I, mean, I mean, it allows the, the old system to carry on. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not putting any pressure on the banks to change or improve. They're not. Um, getting anything for you know they've chucked a whole bunch of money in there and as far as i can see no one's getting anything for it except for the bankers obviously uh, in, in sweden we had uh, oh sorry did i interrupt you no no in sweden we had this really big bank crisis around 1990 i think there were at least some other, i know in japan they had this huge bank and um, etc crisis in 89 90 and in sweden we had the big crisis too and and they they tried to defend the value of the crown because it wasn't floating back then and for like a few days or something the interest rate was 500 percent because they tried to defend the crown which was of course pointless and i think there was other countries too uh, i think it was maybe about same time that uh, george soros made a huge fortune on the pound or something or i'm not sure if that was maybe that was a bit later but uh, and there were banks who actually really crashed and had to be taken over i think by the government but after the, then there was this crisis 2008 and i'm i'm not sure after that or even before it's like in in sweden if the government is going to put money into a private bank then they say they want the control over the bank so that that's the thing if you you can't just ask for billions of dollars or trillions and uh, then you have to give over the control of the bank. Absolutely, yeah. I, th- I think if the bank is asking for that sort of money, then it's failed. Mm-hmm. It's basically failed. And you know, any other industry, we decided to collapse. But 
Yeah. And and because we're and, and to bring us back to the original point, because uh, that the banking system, the financial system, is more or less the same as it was before. In fact, in terms of one of the reasons that, that we went through that financial crisis is because regulations, some of which dated all the way back to the the, the Great Depression itself in 1929, or the just the immediate aftermath of it, a lot of those regulations were systematically unpicked, probably mainly in under Reagan and Thatcher in the UK and US, and in the, in, from the 70s through to the 80s, 90s, uh, because all of that regulation has been removed and none of it's been put back. Um, it seems to me it's quite likely to happen again as soon as as soon as people think, oh, this is quite comfortable. Yep, yep, let's just carry on as we were before. We're all getting richer, and and wham. Uh, so for that reason, you know, I think this is about the worst time uh, to lose control of your own currency. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a referendum maybe ten years ago about should we get the euro or not. Be and uh, there was quite a big majority against it, so we still have our own <clears throat> our own currency. And what's the population of Sweden? Nine million. Okay, that's about the same as Yorkshire, where David. <laughs> Probably yes. Yeah, I mean, and there you go. I mean, that that, that uh, I mean, Yorkshire's got a strong identity, you know. Uh, uh, it's got a population which is you know, almost double that of Scotland. I think you could quite easily if uh, make a case for Yorkshire becoming uh, separate <laughs> for uh, and perhaps even with stronger reasons. So what would you what would Yorkshire call the Yorkshire currency though? The Yorkie pudding. <laughs> the bomb cake. That's more Lancashire, really, isn't it? It is. That sounds like a cowboy from the wild west. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can you can bound it to silver and call it pudding sterling. Pudding Sterling. Yeah, I like that, Pudding Sterling. That would work well for Scotland too. <laughs> right, according to um, Wikipedia, the historic boundary of Yorkshire, so including the three um, primary counties, in 2011, the population was 5.2 million. Like anybody actually has. <laughs> oh, I, I was told recently that the population of Yorkshire that includes because it's all divided up into North Yorkshire and South Yorkshire and stuff now, isn't it? Uh, yeah. the, oh, it? The total of that came to ten million, but maybe that's beyond those historical boundaries. Oh, hang on a second. Does that include East? Yes, it does. Yeah, so it in includes all, all well, effectively all four counties. Oh, well, then I was just misled. How many people are there in Scotland? It's about five, five million. It's more than it's ever been. It's about five point two, something like that. Uh, five point three. There are more, more people in Yorkshire than there are in Scotland. Oh no, just slightly more in Scotland. So yeah, Yorkshire should break off and become independent.
Debate. That wasn't all that heated, really, was it? We don't. It's probably is we don't really have anyone who's dead against uh, sorry yeah. for Scottish in, in independence. And I have to say that among people I know, that's not that often happens. Is that there's four people sitting on the table all agreeing that they don't want independence, uh, or there's one person at the table out of five, you know, typically. But I think that reflects the people I hang around with, and uh, I don't think it's representative. But anyway, Boris Johnson prepares for a Tory electoral wipeout. Was the next item. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Could I say something more about Scotland? I've been thinking of the the are the counter. I mean, many people in Scotland want to remain in the UK, but what the arguments? Or did I miss that because I had such bad connection? That what are the arguments from the rest of the UK? UK is it like lukewarm? Uh, please stay. Or I mean, uh, is there any? enthusiasm for keeping Scotland in or are people just don't care or I haven't I think from a a political perspective it's a no-brainer outside of Scotland I think that there we would want Scotland to remain part of the union and that for purely political reasons um but I, I don't know whether you have you heard my opinion my opinion is I think Scotland should remain part of the union as well but how that fits across the rest of the um, of the the outside Scotland population, I really don't know. Unless everybody else has got some thoughts on that. Well, I, 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 there have been um, some uh, some news articles and reports I've heard on exactly that point, and it does seem to me that uh, that that people outside um, Scotland uh, would like Scotland to stay as part of the the union. 
Not not everyone, obviously, it's not as unanimous, but it, it, I was I think it was easily a majority. I don't know if I've seen a, a poll, but I think the most telling thing is that when the referendum was being discussed, and it was proposed seriously proposed that it should be a UK wide referendum. Uh, that was quite vehemently opposed by the Scottish National Party because they knew they had no chance of winning that. Uh, uh, so I would guess from from what I've heard, none of it's definitive, that yeah, that, that, that most people in the UK would prefer Scotland to stay. On the subject of um, manipulating your electoral advantage, what is the voting age of this referendum? Because I saw something about it being 16. Did that go through in the end? Yes, again, Alex Hammond decided that uh, now would be the right time to drop the voting age from 18 to 16. And I think that's going to follow through in all the other elections, including the UK. But anyway, the the reason he did that, of course, is because he thought the younger people uh, would be more likely to vote yes. As it turned out, he was uh, actually wrong. The the younger folk uh, turned out out to be quite uh, quite keen to stay in, in the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. I don't know quite how they managed to shoot themselves in the foot like that, but they did. Um, uh, so yeah, it's quite clear that that is the case. So yeah, you're right, the voting age is 16. He wouldn't be able to drop the voting age for the general election though, would he? No, but I think um, I think it was sort of contagious that uh, the other political parties thought, ooh, Ooh, maybe, you know, maybe maybe we can get a few votes our way uh, if if we give the votes to the younger folk. Because I think that's what the thought was. If we say here, uh, here, sixteen and seventeen year olds, we we think you've got something valuable to say. You have the vote, and the person giving them the vote in this case, it was Alex Hammond, the first minister of Scotland, uh, would get some kudos. So I think he was thinking he would might benefit in, in that direction. And I think other politicians have have been, have been you know, had the same idea. I mean, talk, talking about Alex Salmon for a minute, I mean, it does seem to me from the, the, the things that I've seen him on, on television and listening to him on the radio, that this is definitely a, a personal crusade more than it is a, a political one. Uh, you know, he, is, he really personally wants Scotland to be an independent country. There's no question about that at all. The way he's going about it, I think, is just a little, little, little on the petulant side, a little bit childish in, in certain respects. But I'm wondering whether... If the referendum actually backfires on him and the Scottish people vote to remain part of the union, then presumably that will make his position as First Minister of Scotland completely untenable. Yes, I think I think you're right. In fact, even in the last week, because he didn't. And one thing he is very good at is he's a very good orator, very good speaker. You know, I would honestly think David Cameron would be afraid to stand and debate with him um, uh, because he is he, he is very good. He's very sharp, very quick in his very quick witted. Is he? Uh, I would say he's first minister of Scotland. What does that mean? Well, it's equivalent to the Prime Minister of the Westminster Parliament. He's the first minister in the Scottish Parliament. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. But, uh, uh, he's also the leader of the majority party in the Parliament, which in this case is the Scottish National Party. Yeah. Um, but to answer uh, Dave's point, for some reason, uh, the his, his personality, which has served him very well up until now, even in Westminster, he was a accomplished Westminster player as well. He wasn't uh, certainly wasn't just a Scottish politician. Um, he he somehow has lost 
this magic touch. And I actually think that David Cameron might be kicking himself a bit, thinking, well, I could have maybe taken him on, because he actually did want to debate um, David Cameron, not Alistair Darling. He was a bit annoyed, I think, Alex Salmon, that he didn't get to go head-to-head with uh, the Prime Minister. Um, but it's but in the last week that he's uh, he's you know had his tail between his legs a wee bit, and it's the th- your prediction, Davis, spot on because you can see the cracks starting to show uh, around him. There's obviously divisions on the currency question with people that you should be quite close to him in the Yes campaign disagreeing with him and saying, no, no, Scotland should have its own currency, which actually I think they're right. It should. Uh, that, that makes far more sense. It would do certainly if they if they went completely independent and you know effectively became a brand new country. Um, then yes, they would need their own currency, or to at the very least plug into the euro. Um, I don't see how staying with um, with with sterling, if they're going to be maintaining their own economy, is going to work at all. Anyway, should we uh, move on to the next topic? Yes, what's up with Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson has declared that he's going to sta- he wants to stand for parliament in the next election. The thing about Boris Johnson is he's currently mayor of London and he originally said that he would serve out his term and not seek parliament, not not try and become an MP until his term came came to an end in 2016. The next election is in 2015. And if the Tories lose that election, Basically, Cameron will resign, and then there'll be a leadership election, and Boris will have missed his chance to become leader. So the fact that he's that he's, that he's looking for a seat in Parliament suggests very strongly that he thinks the Tories are going to lose the next election. Any, any other thoughts? That's a very good way of putting it. I hadn't considered that. I mean, it's, it's no secret that he's been really wanting to get back into um, into Parliament for quite some time, and there has been this this question about how he's going to be able to cope with the uh, the demands of being a London mayor and also being uh, a, a, a serving parliamentary member for that one-year period. It seems to me the logical thing to do that should um, should he gain his seat and should the Conservatives lose, I was going to say lose their majority, they now have one, if they, lo- <laughs> if they lose um, their part in the government then the logical thing for him to do would be to step down as Mayor of London. Yeah. But whether he'd do that or not, because as far as I can tell, the feedback that I've picked up on from the Londoners is that they don't want him to resign as, as Mayor of London. He's, he's, for as much stick as he gets in the, in, the, in the media and in the press, he's actually quite a good politician. I, I have to agree with you there, Dave. I think for... You know, looking at the current crop of Tory MP, well, Tory politicians, he's one of the better ones because he does seem to. He he comes across as um, out of touch, elitist, and all the rest of it. But I think he also does have quite a pragmatic streak, mm. um, which is why he's been successful as Mayor of London, and why he's you know more popular than you would otherwise expect. I, uh, well, I th- well, I think well, your, your analysis of of what he intends to do actually makes sense to me, and I hadn't quite realised that the prediction in there is that he thinks 
the Tories will, the Conservatives will lose the next election. That hadn't quite fitted together, so it makes perfect sense to me now you said it. But I think we just for folk who aren't familiar with UK politics, I don't know how much, how well Boris Johnson is known outside the UK, but it's just worth seeing his background as a, as a uh, right-wing Tory Conservative MP. Uh, not particularly famous until he appeared on a, a television sh- quiz show, which is slightly a reverent look at politics, which he came across as some bumbling, slightly amusing fool, and you know, quite, quite, you know, quite, which he is, yeah. which, which, well, well, which he likes to present himself yes. as, yeah, mm. um, and. Well, and, then, and then this is maybe where my analysis differs from from yours. And then he used that to uh, to his advantage, uh, much much more personable um, uh, character than many of the other politicians, especially Tory politicians, not talking spin and bullshit and all the rest of it. Um, uh, and this bumbling persona meant that you he didn't fit in with the, the rest of the crowd, but. Actually, over time, I've come to find him quite sinister. That, but beneath this uh, rather uh, almost now avuncular sort of um, slightly buffoonish persona, there's something I find very disturbing about him. And I've read reports about how really he, on a personal level, he uh, not only does he not get very close to other people, he doesn't ever form close relationships with people, but he very quickly will will just start ignoring someone when he's he finds there of no use to him and some of the things he says in more private speeches speeches which are not in front of you know the olympic audience worry me deeply that he is very much part of uh, an elitist class uh, and that he you know is just as as, as hellbent in uh, keeping the rich rich and if not richer uh, than any of his uh, fellow members of the Conservative Party, so actually I find what I thought was quite an, uh, an innocent and amusing bumbling politician, actually I find him quite sinister now, and actually if he did one day become Prime Minister of the UK, uh, I imagine Scotland would shoot off into independence <laughs> quick smart. <laughs> uh, no, I think for, not, I mean he's one of the more famous UK politicians outside the UK, I think. I mean, he's a mayor and he's still quite famous. And I've seen clips of him and he seems kind of spontaneous and smart and, uh, and uh, you know, relaxed. And uh, But I've, I've also have a feeling and I, I think I've heard it uh, from people maybe in England that He's really genuine upper class so much that he can, you know, he doesn't have to prove anything. He can just bumble about and uh, say things uh, spontaneously, but he's not that he, he, uh, so I've heard that he's not as spontaneous and uh, easygoing as he like appears to be. He's not just spontaneous. I mean, he's uh, curating his own image more than one would think. Every spontaneous quip takes hours of planning, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I think he is. he's actually an incredibly intelligent man, and he, he's very much aware of what he does. Now, I don't know how true this is, and I'm going to precede this with a caveat that this is only what I've heard, so it is not necessarily true. Um, I had heard that part of the reason for his eccentricity 
and the way that he presents himself is that he actually suffers from Asperger's. Now, I've checked this on on the Wikipedia page, and there's no mention of it whatsoever. So it may not be true at all. But I did hear it from a fairly reliable source. So it is possible. So that might explain. Yeah, I've never heard of somebody with Asperger's syndrome wanting to be the centre of attention the way he does. That I mean, I know, I know, um, it's uh, you can't generalise these things, but that, I mean, that seems to be very odd. Um, I, I can't square that one. Um, I'm just reading this this here. It says, um, as a child, Johnson suffered from defeat, uh, severe deafness and had to go undergo several operations to have grommets inserted into his ears. And he was reported to have been rather quiet as a child. Now, that I can't believe. The, the little I've heard and seen of him was, I mean, he seems very intelligent and quite funny and sharp. And I mean, compared to... I mean, Cameron and Milliband, they, they look like they would need some blood transfusion. I mean, those are <laughs> extremely boring people. I mean, they're astonishingly boring. I think It's like they, they don't have any color at all. No, they're, they're, I, th- I think the thing about the likes of Cameron and Milliband, they're so worried about staying on topic and not being misquoted that, yeah, they, they deliberately avoid saying anything that can ever be picked up and used against them. Whereas Johnson appears not to care about this. Now, I suspect that he does care about it and he's very careful about what he says, but he comes across a lot more relaxed, a lot more easygoing and a lot less worried about being on topic all the time. You could say the same about um, Nick Clegg as well uh, in in that same respect. Um, I don't know whether you're aware, but both um, Boris Johnson and Nick Clegg do radio shows um, on LBC. The UK. Um, now, I think, was it Ed Miliband that said that he wanted to um, make the Prime Minister more accessible to the public? Um, so we have, we have um, something called PMQs, Prime Minister's Questions, um, in Parliament. I think it happens on a weekly basis. And it basically, it's an open forum for the, um, the members of Parliament to uh, I don't know if they could, they're allowed to directly address him because there's there's rules in Parliament, but they can ask questions of the Prime Minister, which he then um, tries very carefully not to answer. Um, but it was I'm sure it was Ed Miliband that said that he wanted to try and open that up so that the, the Prime Minister's questions could be then open to the public, so the public could come in and ask questions of senior politicians. I With, can't see that working at all, to be honest. No, well, certainly not in Parliament. Yeah. But I, I've listened to um, Nick Clegg's radio show, and the public are going to him as Deputy Prime Minister, asking him questions which he has, which Nick Clegg has had no prior uh, prior knowledge of. So he's basically trying to respond to these live on air, on the fly, with no prompting or, or preparation whatsoever. Now, can you really imagine somebody like David Cameron or Ed Miliband? having a radio show and responding to things like that and actually answering the questions. Yeah, uh, something like, like David Cameron. I, I don't know about Ed Miliband. I, I, don't, I, I don't think Ed Miliband either, to be honest. Uh, yeah. The, the thing, though, about you mentioned Prime Minister's question time, one thing that's come up repeatedly, and I've been thinking for years, is it's just so bloody pointless. It's just like, it's just like some posh public, uh, as in private school 
England, <laughs> confusing <laughs> terminology, but like Eton, you know, some top-notch English schools debating society, whereas two sides of the house going yaboo at each other and making rather facile, slightly often actually quite personal uh, derogatory remarks on the other person and 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 really like I was saying before there's no debate there's no there's no sense that one side is ever going to take a point on board from the other side of the house it's just it's just a pantomime in fact it does feel like a pantomime so mm. so I would give um, I know I'm sounding a bit pro Ed Miliband here but I would, <laughs> I would give Ed Miliband credit for wanting to break that up uh, and do do away with it because even journalists are getting fed up with it. But that's that's how Parliament works. As I said, there are rules in Parliament. You have to adhere to the um, the the conventions and traditions of how Parliament used to work. Um, I, I think I think the other thing though is that the way Parliament is, is supposed to work has been abused because the the idea is that anyone should be able to put a question to the Prime Minister and have it answered. But what actually happens is that. Backbench MPs looking to get promoted put forward some really boot-looking question of the sort, will the Prime Minister agree that he's wonderful? And then the Prime Minister agrees, and then the opposition finds find someone to put, put something... There's no attempt to actually answer, you know, answer a question or resolve, you know, you know get, get to the bottom of anything. It's just, yeah. And of course, they can't speak to, the, speak to each other either. They have to speak to the Speaker. Which I think True. is just the probably the the most pompous uh, manner of 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 wall building, barrier building that I have ever known. I don't disagree with you, but I don't think that that's the major problem. I think I think the major problem is that questions are put forward to um, support or, or or oppose the prime minister or whoever whichever minister is being questioned. They're not actually being put forward to, answer, to to get answers, which is what they're supposed to be there for. I have no idea whether that made any sense at all. No, no, it did. It, it absolutely did, and yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. It, it is, it is a shroud. It, it, it's, it is like seeing your your end of year school play. Not even. I mean, at an end of year school play, at least the kids can manage to stand up in the straight line and not shout at the wrong time and all the rest of it. So. Yeah, no, I like I like you like your will. Will, uh, will the prime minister agree how wonderful he is? Uh, point. You know, sometimes I, I find uh, I'm listening to uh, you know reports uh, the journalists in the mainstream media, and, and I, I suppose they have to. They have, I'm not criticising the mainstream media as a whole, but it's quite obvious, especially in 24-hour reporting, where you have to fill up the time with something. You get a journalist on a television or the radio asking a politician something like isn't it dreadful that this plane has crashed and lots of people have been killed and then the politician has to say oh yes it's dreadful this plane has crashed it's terrible that people have died and like, I mean come on I mean surely the <laughs> you know like the, the politicians are obviously queuing up at the door for such questions you know like uh, but uh, you know it, it seems to me there's a lot of time wasted with such pointless question asking and and for sometimes you know in the whole in i see in, in this sort of arse looking going on in the in, in the politics circles in the house of commons but in media it's just to fill up time as far as i can tell uh, i completely agree I, th- I think the problem with 24 hours news is that news doesn't happen 24 hours a day so it's like yeah they, they, they kind of keep on circling around the same few stories that really yeah they, they've got too much time and not enough news
Do BBC have 24 hour news? Yes. Yep, BBC News 24, it's the, the prime culprit. Oh, not anymore. It's the is BBC it not? News channel. Oh, is it not? Because no. it shows you how much I watch it. <laughs> the BBC maybe have ma many correspondents around the globe, or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've got they've got loads and loads. Um, that that was actually the um, the subject of of a, of a piece of satire, and I can't remember where I heard it. Um, but basically, for half an hour, this um, this comedy show took the took the piss out of uh, the BBC for sending, you know, sending correspondents into a conflict zone to report from a conflict zone when they could have just done it from a neighbouring town or even from a studio down the road. What you know? What is the point in sending one of their correspondents into Gaza, which they have done, um, to report from Gaza when there's like bombs and bullets flying overhead, putting them in, into risk? To just say it's really bad here. So why are you sending someone in there to risk their life to tell us what we already know? Exactly, unless they're looking for whatever the equivalent is of the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, I, I agree. And unless unless they're trying to find out some bit of information that we don't already have or that hasn't already, you know. Yeah, like interviewing locals, maybe. I mean, there, there, there's yeah. a, a, a slight justification for going in there, but they're just standing there with a with a dead cat by their side and, and just saying, it's really bad, you can see where we are, and you can see what's going on. Or well, we know that without you being there. Yeah.
Belgium still doesn't have a government. Indeed. We had a national election when the EU elections held. There was also uh, regional and national elections, which I don't get to vote for. But we now have a federal government for Flanders, but Belgium, which means that the, the parties involved in the federal government will agree to form a national government, but we still don't have one. Still ongoing. Weren't you out of didn't uh, you weren't you without government a few years back, like for four hundred days or something? About sixteen months, yeah, yeah. So who's running the country? So it's a Belgian uh, tradition. I think it's becoming yeah. one. It's becoming one. I don't think it's going to be as bad this time round. But yeah, it's like it was. It was ridiculous last time. The th- thing to answer Dave's question, the thing is, Belgium is actually a very uh, decent centralized country so you have your federal government you have your your uh, illuminati we have the illuminati <laughs> we also have uh, pol- uh, flemish and walloon pal- uh, um, parliament there's also a flanders parliament and a francophone parliament except the flemish and uh, uh, flanders parliaments emerged and there's a german parliament for the german speakers as well and then we have town councils below that so There's plenty of politicians and plenty of um, uh, councils and all the rest of it. We don't really need the the the, the national government doesn't have that much to do. <clears throat> It's funny this should come up because uh, a month ago I was down south in uh, Cambridge for my sister's. Uh, big birthday party that she was having and it was really late at night and you know it was only just like the, the last few you know, like uh, hardy souls left and i got chatting to this guy uh, at the bar who was part of the birthday party the uh, you know that way that's late at night and you know, he'd had far too much to drink i'd had probably about the right amount to drink in my opinion and uh, and 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 he he'd become my best friend it seemed from where he was talking to me and he was like you know the expectation that anything he was going to say i was going to agree with wholeheartedly and for the most part i was fine to do that but then he started talking about belgium and he said that all the belgians were a bunch of i can't repeat the word here <laughs> uh began with c and he kept saying it very loudly i said i've got to stop you there i said like see if you took belgian and replaced it with Indian, <laughs> what you just said would be totally unacceptable. And then, uh, and then he, uh, I couldn't tell he was English. He had nothing from London. He had nothing to do with Belgians. Although I think he did teach English as a foreign language. But anyway, he, had, he really had it in for the Belgians. But then I was reflecting on it afterwards. One of the reasons he gave, incidentally, was Belgians' inability to form a government. But uh, I was reflecting on it afterwards. And I was thinking, you know, Belgium does really get it. You know, you can be quite racist against Belgi- the poor Belgians and get away with it. I mean, didn't Monty Python do an entire episode where they just slagged off Belgium for no reason? Was it Monty Python or Not 9 O'Clock News? I remember I'm, I'm sure Not 9 O'Clock News did, did a, a joke about um, the Belgians a long time ago. Didn't they do several with, uh, funny things about different countries? There is like some song, Finland, 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 and There's also there's also the fact that according to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Belgium is the most obscene word in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> is Belgium a country even, or is yes. it just a collection of uh, uh, I don't know Freemasons? <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you've got you've got the uh, Flemish speak the Flemish speaking north, you've got the Francophone south. So 
And I, I think I think this going going back to what what Andrew was saying about their inability to form form a country. I think really Belgium's quite quite the advert for democracy because you've got these two communities who really don't see eye to eye on anything they don't even trust each other and yet the worst that happens is lots of negotiations and parties with free chips being given out so you know it's not doing that, doesn't that sound bad. Too bad exactly yeah <clears throat> yeah I've, 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 but sorry, these what, what? flemish national oh please go ahead no no on you go Uh, these Flemish nationalists, do they want to join with the Netherlands or do they want to start their own country or what uh, do they want? The N- the NVA, um, which is, the, yeah, the, the NVA are the uh, Flemish Nationalist Party. And as I, well, what they talk about these days is confederalism. And this is the idea that everything should be devolved down to the region. So the Flemish and the Walloon Parliament, as far as possible. And they just keep on pushing this over and over again, until such t- and obviously until such time as there's nothing for the central government to do anymore. At which point they declare it, yeah, uh, it uh, that all done and dusted. But, um, no, they they don't want to um, join the Netherlands. They want to they want Flanders to become a se- a separate state within the within the EU. I've yeah. I've, ju- I've just found uh, the, the the section of Monty Python uh, that I was thinking of, and do you mind if I, I read a little bit of it out? Please uh, do. Please. Jay says, "Well, it says prejudiced host says this. Well, now the result of last week's competition when we asked you to find a derogatory term for the Belgians. Well, the response was enormous and <laughs> quite a long time sorting out the winners. There were some very clever entries. Mrs. Hatred of Leicester said, let's not call them anything. Let's just ignore them.'" Mr. St. John of Huntington said he couldn't think of anything more derogatory than <laughs> Belgians. <laughs> well, in the end, we settled on three choices. Number three, the Sprouts, sent in by Mrs. Vicious of Hastings. Number two, the Flames, from Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Child Molester of Worthing. But the winner was undoubtedly Mrs. No Supper for You from Norwood and Lancashire, miserable fat Belgian bastard. <laughs> <laughs> now, you see... If you went through that and replaced Belgian with Indian, it wouldn't be allowed. But I, I'm not sure, but I, well, I'm speaking only for myself. But maybe I think m- most people have some at least cliche picture of like Dutch, French, German, English, Norwegians, but Belgians? Hey, what? Well, who is that? What's that? <laughs> Uh, I know it's Belgian. Let's see, Belgian beer, very good. Belgian chocolate, also very good, and French fries, which are actually Belgian. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's fi- yeah, but as like like a bel, uh, we know the country exists, but we don't really have any picture what a Belgian is. I mean, I, I don't mean that's bad. Maybe that's good. Maybe we should ask our our, our listeners in Belgium to send in pictures of themselves. That's a very good idea. Well, you could be the first one. I'll send it. Well, yeah, my, Paul, my, my, have to fake a few ones. <laughs> my, my photo's already on the um, on 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 the Duffy Cass website, isn't it? On the About Us page. Yeah, but you're not actually a Belgian. You have to send in pictures of Belgians. Fair enough. Okay, I'll, I'll just run <laughs> up. I'll run up to people in the street and say, "Can I take a photo of you?" Run. Actually, no. I'll just run up to people in the street and take photos but <laughs> until someone hits me. Then, actually, <laughs> actually, just run up to people in the street. <laughs> <laughs> but are there any actual Belgians? How do you mean? I mean, uh, they they Belgium. seem to di- they seem to disagree about <laughs> what the, what it is. Or? 
well, there's the, there is a country. There are people who are born in the country. There are people who have Belgian passports. Um, oh. Yeah, it's got a long 150-year history. So, you know. Am I not drinking Belgian beer right now? You, what are you drinking? Stella. Ah, that is a Belgian beer, yes. 150-year history? That's yes. not even as long as Scotland's not been I know, uh, an independent I know. country. I know. It's not been around for very long at all. Yeah, no, no, let's let no. We're not going to get lots of hate mail from Belgians, especially <laughs> especially the one of us who lives in Belgium. <clears throat> okay. So moving smooth on. Uh Dave's drinking Stella, uh and I'm drinking Highland Park, and Mikkel mentioned one beer they Mikkel mentioned one beer that he's drinking. Were there any other um, drinks to add to our list? Mm, I had a glass of water a minute ago. But I can go and get a whiskey if you want. Hey, he's on the hard stuff there. Eh? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go and get a whiskey. Okay. Back. <laughs> I've, um, my son is visiting to me today. and Well, my son is an adult person, I might add. So we have like shared a few beers. So uh, the first four ones were... Swedish beers, uh, but now I am actually drinking. So I haven't drank four bottles by myself. But uh, the, now I'm on the fifth bottle, and that's Brew Dog. It appears to be a Scottish beer. I, well, I think I've yeah. had Brew Dog before. The, this one is they call Zeitgeist Idiosyncratic Black Lager. It was quite good, actually. Ooh. Black lager. Looks like a joke. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's quite dark, but uh... right. I've got my whiskey. Um, I was going to ask you if you could identify it by the sound of <laughs> me taking the cork out of the bottle. But do you know what happened? The cork broke in half. So it's oh, really yeah. right. oh no! <laughs> I know. So with just armed with that knowledge and me slurping it. What kind of whiskey is that? That sounded like a grandpa dick. I'm going to say McCallum. Oh, you're both wrong. It's a 30... No, it's a (laughs) 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 12-day-old... Glumfiddick. Oh no! That was the, that was the my favourite answer. But the the truth was, it's. Oh, do you know I've forgotten? Hang on a second. <laughs> That's how good it is, folks. <laughs> Induces amnesia. That's how much he had. Yeah. Whilst Andrew is off finding out exactly what the alcohol is that he's just consumed, um, I need to think about heading off, uh, as we have been recording now for nearly an hour and three quarters. Okay. Oh, we have, haven't we? Yes, I think I'll need to go to, but it was in fact, to put it out of misery, a 17-year-old Bowmore. Oh, that sounds nice. I really want to be excited for you, but I, I just never got into scotch. That's okay. A lot of people don't like it. And uh, I think uh, if, if someone brings a, a really, really special scotch into the house, I will try some and I'll enjoy it, but I won't necessarily go back to it. Um... The only whiskey, you know, tentatively whiskey that I will ever, ever drink is um, Jack Daniels. Ah. Yeah, I know, I know. I know. 
No, sorry, I just downed the whiskey there. That was all it was. <laughs> yes, I bet that had a bit of a, a bit of an effect. Drinking Jack Daniels. Are you not a loyal European? <laughs> no, I'm a British person that just happens to appreciate Tennessee whiskey. I don't know much about whiskey. I think only the Scots, yeah. the Scots, Scots will take offence at Jack Daniels. I think everywhere else in the world actually really enjoys it. No, well, that's, well, that's, well, that's quite true. We we do like it in Scotland too, but we mainly okay. use it to clean urinals with. <laughs> <laughs> I think they drink it, but they're only in secret. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody. I think even the Scots like it. Really, they just don't want anybody to know. I, actually, I'll tell you, I have two guilty pleasures. In the whiskey department, um, many more, of course, in other departments. But uh, <laughs> uh, the um, I quite like um, Paddy's Irish whiskey. I'm quite partial mm. to that, and Jim Beam. Uh, do you know? I knew you were going to say that. How did you know? I don't know. It just it entered my head. But isn't Jim Beam Canadian? It certainly is. It's, it's a rye whiskey, isn't? Is that right? That's uh, the, the word that comes into isn't my head. Isn't that bourbon, or is bourbon it, whiskey? It is a bourbon of sorts, yes. It says Kentucky bourbon whiskey mm. uh, on, on their own website. Why do I think it was Canadian? And this is another one that I've had before, which is a Canadian origin. Uh, yeah, I, do, I somehow thought it was um, from somehow in the north of the United States, uh, and the very north of the United States is, 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 is almost Canada, so... <laughs> <laughs> I can see where that, how, how that works. <laughs> Mind you, Kentucky's not in the north, so I don't know what, what I'm talking about there. It's North America. That's what you meant. E- yes, yes. It's North America. We can all agree, uh, agree on that. So, white continent. Uh, com- coming back to Scotland, I, I mentioned something about uh, I was looking for some music for this episode, and I found one that I liked, and afterwards I discovered it was actually an artist from Scotland, so I started to try to find music from Scotland uh, under free cultural licenses uh, by attribution, share-like or something. And I couldn't find any other artist from Scotland that release their music under free cultural license is, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not going to make any ethnic joke about that. Well, I, you, you, you say that. I, I saw your comment on the show notes. And I, I, I went to look because there was a ska band that used to be on Jumendo. I went back and looked, um, well, this evening, and they appeared to have deleted their account and pulled all their, all their stuff off there. Which one? Uh, um... The, the band was called The Scar Souls. I found a Russian artist but I don't see that any, but had the, their last name was Scotland, but that was all. Well, I tell you, the person to ask about this, of course, is Kevy. Uh, he uh, has been in touch with uh, various artists in Scotland um, for Tux Jam, and of course... Uh, we only really play CC. We only we only play CC music really in Tuxedo. So um, he he must know some others if you if you want to find Scottish really licensed music. Yeah, I found a lot, but you know, see by attribution, share alike, and uh, m- most uh, Creative Commons music also have a n- non-commercial clause, which isn't free culture. Yeah, it, it's usually not called free culture by. 
I think even by Creative Commons themselves. So, I mean, I don't think it's a problem, but that's like a limit we have put on this show. I think actually we are unique to have that yeah. limit. Uh, so, we do, I, so we use the, the non-commercial license, do we? We we use um, CC by SA or less restrictive or more permissive. CC by or CC zero. Exactly, yeah. So CC zero, CC by or CC SA. Oh, sorry, I must have misunderstood what somebody else said then. Okay. Because there is a... Um, or public a, a, domain, of course. Yeah, of course. There is a Scottish band in um, Scotland, unsurprisingly, a ska band called Bomb Scare, which we've played on the podcast before, but unfortunately, as I've just discovered, they are not Creative Commons. Yeah, I, I find quite a few, but, well, I think most bands or artists actually have a non-commercial clause. So um, it was just hard to find. I didn't find any public domain tracks either, but... Uh, uh, model aeroplanes are free culture. They're from Scotland. Model aeroplanes? Although they're not really, um, not really OFTs. Can I just correct myself about the Scottish band I referred to earlier? The Scarsholes were never on Jumendo, it looks like. They have a free download on Bandcamp. Um, so it's still uh, copyright all rights reserved, so we can't use ah. it. But yeah, but I was looking in the wrong place. I just thought it would be fun to find something from Scotland that. But It, it would, it would if, and if, if we could find a pro independence and a union band and play them back. To back, that would be even more fun. <laughs> <laughs> Rule Britannia. I was thinking that the uh, song was by No Limits. You know, no, 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 no. <laughs> Didn't McCalmont and Butler do a track called Yes? Which is kind of like the, the opposite of No. Yes, it is. I've, I don't know. Uh, who, who, who are they? Uh, are they is, this, is this a band that's featured on the Bugcast before? No, this is a commercial band. Oh, no, I've not. English rock soul music duo, David McAlmont and Bernard Butler. Bernard Butler. Well, if we can find... Well, I mean, um, it's obviously hard enough to find any band that's Scotland under a Creative Commons licence, let alone <laughs> ones with specific words in the title. <laughs> Well, if you're looking at it from a population perspective, you're probably more likely, or as equally as likely, to find a Yorkshire band that is Creative Commons as you are a Scottish one. Yes, I don't know how. I mean, how how would you how would how do you know you're looking at a Scottish band? Would all all bands declare their nationality, or is it just Scots that declare their nationality on Jumendo and Bandcamp, etc.? Well, on Jumendo, they actually say where they come from, or they have the option of saying where they come from. Oh, I see. So it's a field they can fill in. Yes. I see. Yeah. I just tried search for Scotland or Glasgow and some other just to find something, but well, it doesn't matter. I do appreciate it when Scottish bands actually sing in their own accent as well, which which is actually quite rare, particularly in commercial music, for bands <laughs> to sing in in a Scottish accent. They they try and naturalise, um, almost Americanise the uh, the accent that they're singing with. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That yeah, they seem to go into these American accents. You know, half of me wonders. You know, the American accent is supposed to be like the accent that you an, an accent you would have found in the British Isles a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, sometimes I wonder whether that's why it's very easy for people in the British Isles to fall into the American accent when they're singing. Uh, that, that, that you know that actually, I wonder why I said that now. Doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> oh, shut up! But see, that's, that's what that making me drink that whiskey has done. I've stopped making sense, or at least I've realised I've stopped making sense. Well, honestly, to be honest, you stopped making sense a while ago. We just didn't want to. Say <laughs> um, there's another band from Scotland called We Were Promised Jetpacks. Um, it's another sh- uh, a little uh, more whiskey, played. and you may make more sense. <laughs> no. But I don't think they're Creative Commons. I love the uh, name, actually. What we were promised. Jet yeah, yeah, brilliant. yeah. Well, the, the the track we've we've played um, was called "Ships with Holes Will Sink," <laughs> um, and it, it it's incredibly Scottish. The accent just comes through so so sharply. But um, no, it looks as though they're uh, they're that um, the demon sea in a circle. That that actually those two titles make me think they're actually from Glasgow, but um, who knows? This sounds like a very Glaswegian thing to do. Uh, I can tell you they are from Edinburgh. Oh, well, I'm talking absolute shape tonight. <laughs> right, I really do need to head off because I have got work tomorrow. Yes, I think I should go. Okay. For similar reasons. So sh- should we close off officially, or should we just like leave people hanging? Um, Is it anyone in particular you want to hang? Not from the people currently connected to this mumble server, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Duffercast, episode 6, uh, the best episode since episode 5. Uh, I'm Michael... <laughs> And I'm Paul. And I'm Dave. And I'm Andrew. And uh, am I going to edit this one? Because um, I can do it. And Dave, I suppose you're preparing for the... You're going pretty soon? Three three weeks away. Um, Three weeks tomorrow we fly out. Where are you going? Um, Malaysia. Oh, I hadn't heard about this. Oh, you're not listening to the show, obviously. No, mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. no, I'm sorry, I have very behind in my podcast. I uh, it's to be a rumble in the jungle. <laughs> I won a trip through work, um, and there's a, a bunch of us, fifty fifty members of, of my my company, um, plus ones, uh, heading over to uh, the island of Borneo um, for seven nights. Then we're going to Kuala Lumpur for one night, and then coming back to. Uh, Rotty, rainy Britain. Oh, that sounds fantastic, apart from the grotty, rainy, but grotty, rainy Britain bit at the end. Oh, I don't know. I think I'd, I'd rather have grotty, rainy, bitten, bitten. I'd, well, actually, I've just given away my own punchline. Grotty, rainy Britain than mosquitoes. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm pretty sure the show title is in what you've just said. Which bit specifically? Grotty, rainy Britain. Yeah, Grotty Rainy Britain. <laughs> Brilliant. 
And of course, don't forget, if you want to find out more about this wonderful show that you have just happened to listen to, um, then you can find us over at duffercast.org. Yeah, I'll be sure to check that out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have and of course, seen? don't forget... Send in your funny sounds. And your pictures of Belgians. (laughs) (laughs) And samples of whiskey. Definitely samples of whiskey. We are easily corrupted. Anywho, right, I am going to stop recording. Okay. Yep, Um, and me too. I'm going to head off. I will do the same. Okay. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night, chaps. A pleasure. Goodbye. Good night.
The music played on episode 6 was Jim Tate with Song Composed in August, Jamie Rumley with Thank You, and both these artists can be found on gemendo.com. And the third tune was Small Colin with Dancing Cakes, and that can be found on cctracks.com. And all these three songs are licensed under a CC by SA license. And the final public domain track was Sergei Rachmaninov, who played Frédéric Chopin's Waltz in E-flat, Opus 18. And that was recorded sometime in the 1920s.